0: Welcome to the Monthly BV Magazine podcast, your genuine slice, as ever, of rural Dorset life. This is episode one for August 2023. It's hello from me, Terry Bennett. And hello from me, Jenny Devitt. In this episode, we'll have a selection of your letters to the editor.
1: Adam Woolcott of the Dorset Wildlife Trust is a fan of that striking bird of prey, the red
0: kite. Simon Hoare poses the intriguing question as to whether every town needs a town centre, and goes on to answer it in the affirmative. Mike Chapman of
1: the Lib Dem says it's time for change, time for the
0: grown-ups. Labour's Pat Osborne condemns the government's recent decision to grant new oil and gas licences, and argues that its policy of achieving net zero by 2050 is doomed to fail. And Ken Huggins of the Greens talks about the good,
1: the bad and the downright ugly. And we have part two of the interview with co-director of the Bournemouth University Geopolis Dig, Paul Cheatham. But first,
0: here's our editor, Laura.
2: We'll barely have time to celebrate the fact the BV turns three this month. Three years! How is that even possible? We have a packed few weeks ahead as i write we're just 10 days away from the second claysmore classic and supercar sunday which is swiftly followed by the gillingham and Shaftesbury show if you're going and obviously you should if you can do come and say hello if you spot us around the showground i promise we're friendly and we'd love it if you did straight afterwards we'll be looking ahead at the dorset county show and of course rolling swiftly into our september issue before we can blink as well as the sterns and newton cheese festival and squeezing in a trip to london for another award ceremony And then we just might go find somewhere quiet for a very long nap. And no, we are not going to discuss the fact that I have seen two high street chains appear in my social media feed this week with Christmas trees up and decorations for sale in store. However, you'll never find us complaining about a busy month. Well, not often, I admit I'm not a total ray of sunshine when running on too little sleep and too much caffeine. Though we've lived here for more than 30 years, the last three spent running the BV has allowed us to see like never before the rich tapestry of Dorset. We've had the privilege of getting to know so many of you. And every issue reveals more of the resilience and character, the strength, the goodwill and the sheer talent that defines our local businesses and communities. Contrary to popular perception, we locals know that Dorset is so much more than some beautiful beaches and a famous cobbled hill. It's a beautiful hub of innovation, creativity, determination. The awards we've won this year have been a welcome nod to our efforts over the last three years, of course. But actually, the real reward lies in knowing that thousands of people appreciate what we do every month. We feel we've grown not just as a publication, but as a part of our community. We're committed to supporting local, sharing stories that matter and being a voice for Dorset. Thanks for sticking with us.
0: Time for your letters to the editor.
1: And a letter for Ian Tattersall of Gillingham, who says, Save the planet. It's a phrase used everywhere we look. I'm not an activist, nor an eco-campaigner, and I'm not about to start supergluing myself to the M25 or London Waterloo Express train. I do believe that we should all try and do our bit, relative to our means and circumstance. Maybe then we can save our grandchildren and great-grandchildren from the perilous fate that looms ahead. For our bit, we have swapped our diesel cars for electric ones since 2016. We have spent the last 11 years making our home more energy efficient as time and resources allowed. Our house has moved from an EPC rating of D in 2012 to A in 2022. For a 1980s built detached house, this is no mean feat. We have insulated under the floors, added more loft insulation, cavity wall insulation, fitted A-plus rated double glazing and doors. We had 4 kilowatt PV installed in 2012 and, wherever possible, replaced older, inefficient appliances with A++ rated new ones. For the last year we ran the whole house 24-7 from either solar power or off-peak electricity, pulled in overnight at a fifth of the price. This year we've had an air source heat pump installed and added a second power wall to further support the running of this pump. We're adding to our solar system to try and reduce our pull on the grid some more. This should mean that we were able to export a lot more green solar generated electricity back to the grid, helping everyone else reduce their carbon footprint too. However, our energy distribution network operator, SSEN, have put a stop to that. We were granted permission to install the extra panels on condition that the installers block our ability to export any electricity to the grid from them. The excess green electricity we generate from the new system will now be grounded to earth and lost while somebody somewhere burns more oil, gas and coal to generate dirty electricity to keep up with demand. It's high time that pressure from the government was put on the likes of SSEN to up their game and upgrade the energy networks urgently so that they're fit for the future
0: that is fast approaching. Roger Tatler of Gillingham writes... Now, we seem to have got to the stage where houses can be built in a council's area even when all the council and residents object. Perhaps we should take a lesson from some French towns. There, the council buys some appropriate land, put in the road and facilities and then grant individual permission to residents to build on the plots as and when the council sees fit. Stop this wholesale development by big building firms just out to make a huge buck regardless of what the locals want. Catherine
1: Langham sent in an email about the solar farm. Dorset Council Strategic Planning Committee has approved plans for a 188 acre solar development, stretching for one mile from northeast to southwest on a site between Mappada, Pulham, Kingstag, and Hazelbury Bryan. Scant consideration was given to local residents' very real concerns that existing high levels of flooding would be exacerbated by concentrated runoff from panels, creating runnels which would increase water levels quickly and cause flash floods. The area is already in a flood zone and the ground saturates for about six months of the year. The applicants have failed to provide adequate infiltration tests of the site or confirm the number of panels planned, so it's currently impossible to calculate the risk. The committee appeared to be more concerned with the relocation of crested newts or whether or not sheep would be grazed under the panels. At one point, debate surrounded the issue of potential fire in battery storage areas. Objectors and observers were surprised that planning and flood officers did not point out that there is in fact no battery storage planned in the application under consideration. Landscape officers and the AONB's concerns that significant damage would be caused to views from the Bullberry Ridge were brushed aside, with the comment that the panels would have a non-reflective coating. Significantly, neither the landscape nor heritage officers were present, and the AONB was not represented. Some will respond that the climate emergency means that renewable energy must trump every other consideration – But is this acceptable when giant solar plants destroy cherished views, fence wildlife out of their usual habitat, take good farmland out of production at a time of food insecurity and risk lives and livelihoods due to exacerbated flooding? National and Dorset planning policy states clearly that environmental damage must not be disregarded during the move to low carbon energy generation. But in this case, elements of policy have been ignored. My personal view is that if larger than about 60 acres, these plants should be located close to motorways or other semi-industrial areas where the landscape, habitat and tranquility is already blighted. Subsidies should be offered to industry and agriculture to cover suitable roofs with solar panels. Taking into account their enthusiasm to cover unspoiled country with industrial panels It's also surprising that Dorset Council does not insist on solar panels and water butts to be standard with every new dwelling and encourage farms and businesses to install
0: panels on their buildings. Karen Wimhurst of Shaftesbury writes regarding Simon Hoare's piece in the BV magazine of July 23. We are watching wildfires ravaging parts of Europe yet again, as well as unmanageable temperatures in the USA, China and the Global South. Clearly, ever-accelerating indicators show that the world is now on the cusp of a number of tipping points, which will make runaway climate change inevitable. Recent research suggests the Gulf Stream may collapse as early as 2025 with catastrophic results. Professor Sir Robert Watson was clear on the Today programme last week, he thinks 1.5 as a goal is becoming unreachable due to lack of political will and states that in this country the measures to ensure we reach our commitments to the Paris Agreement aren't there in any shape or form. Lord Devon of the UK CCC, until recently, stated our government was setting the worst kind of example to the rest of the world compared to other countries who are really moving on green solutions rather than empty pledges, while actively supporting new oil and coal initiatives. This week, Rishi Sunak has clearly shown that, rather than creating opportunities for people across the UK to mitigate the seriousness of the situation we're facing, he prefers to fabricate an anti-green mantra to bolster an election campaign. I therefore find Simon Horst's statement in the BV magazine July 2023 confidence in the commitment of the government to achieve progress cannot be in serious question, extremely surprising. It is at complete odds with anything these eminent climate scientists are saying, and the actions of his government.
1: Say the word kite to someone and they'd probably immediately think you were talking about the kind we fly on the end of a long piece of string. But say that word to a bird lover, and to them it's the red kite, that beautiful big bird of prey we increasingly see cruising up above, scanning the ground for food. Adam Wilcott, who's a conservation trainee with the Dorset Wildlife Trust's warden team for North and West Dorset, falls into the latter category. Adam is a big red kite fan and he agreed that the story of these birds in Britain is one of wildlife conservation's success stories. A good story for once.
3: Yes, oh, it's fantastic. It's a real sort of conservation success story. Um, So red kites were pretty much well entirely extinct in England and they only had a remnant population in Wales so in about 1903 they reckon that the breeding population in Wales sort of mid-Wales was estimated to be sort of single digits with some genetic studies indicating that it might have been you know two or three breeding pairs since then there's been quite a lot of conservation effort to try and keep the, that population stable um, and it's been increasing ever so slightly. So during the Second World War, that increased a little bit more and it continued to increase due to lots of effort being put in to try and preserve, preserve S- them. S- so,
1: things. so Adam, the birds were perilously on the brink then, weren't they, um, over 100 yeah, years I ago? Mean,
3: yeah, they are incredibly rare at this stage. I mean, I've got an antique bird book which says, you know, you're very, very unlikely to see these birds unless you go to a particular area in mid Wales. And even then, you know, it's a joy to see them because they're so rare. And now, you know, when driving to work, I regularly see them in Dorset. Which, so,
1: which, is, which is lovely. So was that location um, in, in Mid Wales uh, kept very secret?
3: I believe, I'm not entirely sure, actually, as to how secret it was there. Uh, because they, do, they can range quite far. So, but well, What is,
1: is their a small... range, oh, on a, say, on an, average, on an average day, if one can say
3: that? Based, I mean, I know it sounds like a bit of a cop-out answer, but as far as they need to go to find food... So it Fair on, enough. Yes, it, yeah, similar to mine, actually. It's, it's about my range for the day. Yeah.
1: And, and and then, Adam, they were... So that little remnant population in Wales yeah. didn't really spill over into England, uh, no, not, not totally for nice, reasons so. of nationalism or anything like that. <laughs> so the, then there were re- reintroductions, which began, what, uh, 30 years ago, something like yes, that about
3: now? Yes, 1989, uh, there was a reintroduction programme initiated by the RSPB, and what was then the NCC, so the Nature Conservancy Council, which is uh, now sort of Natural England or Scottish Natural Heritage. Um, so they reintroduced birds from predominantly Spain, but also Germany and Sweden, into about nine locations over the course of about a decade or so um, across the UK, uh, with the most local to us in Dorset being in the Chiltern Hills. So uh, overall in England, I think they reintroduced about, about 330 birds, Uh, Mostly from Spain, but since then the populations have spread. They've bred really well. They've done. They've been really, really successful. And current estimates are around four thousand four hundred breeding pairs in the UK.
1: Which is fantastic. Uh, uh, So tell me, Adam, the fact that they brought in red kites from Spain—that would have they would have had different genetic makeup, different DNA, wouldn't they? Did that matter?
3: I think when they're doing, when anyone's doing any introduction programs, they always do some sort of feasibility study um, prior to the reintroduction. Um, so as one of the IUCN's guidelines for reintroductions, uh, they've got a series of checklists that they need to do, one of which is trying to find populations sort or of donor populations with as similar genetics as they can. So I think they decided that as the Spanish population was so strong and they were genetically very similar to the ones that we think we've we had. In England at the time, or should have had in England at the time. I think they reintroduced from Spain, Germany, and Sweden. Now, you you say you see them um, uh, when you when you're driving into work, and of course, if
1: yeah. you if you hop over towards um, Oxford uh, area, you see plenty of them cruising mm-hmm. gracefully around in the air, looking for something to eat. What do they
3: eat? Yeah, well, they are beautifully agile flyers, um, but they're predominantly scavengers. So a lot of roadkill, a lot of sort of um, dead pheasants, dead rabbits, that sort of thing, Uh, but they'll also take small mammals, so sort of voles, that sort of thing, up to about the size of a small rabbit, and um, invertebrates, so earthworms and beetles, and you'll often see, I've seen them in the past following the plough as well, so as the earthworms have been churned up, along with the seagulls, you'll often get red kites following that as well. So whereas buzzards will take rabbits and they'll do a lot more, they will be a lot more actively hunting, red kites will be much more scavenging Um, but they will take anything they can get their little talons on
1: sort of cleaning up what the others have have neglected to take now historically red kites were always associated with rubbish dumps weren't they so i was wondering you know have have they had to since we started tidying up rubbish dumps and and having organized rubbish collections have they had to
3: diversify in what they eat I think there'll be a little bit of that, but um, equally there has been a lot more roadkill since we've started doing that, with the you know increase in well increase on cars on the roads, more road is there uh, out and about, and obviously um, pheasant shoots and things means that quite often pheasants get hit. There there is some some aspect of um, having to diversify a little bit, but I think the fact that the population is increasing means that there's clearly enough food for them going around and about.
1: And you, so you say there's there's roadkill, um, there's there's things like that. But they they will also take take earthworms and so on, will they? Yes,
3: yeah. They can take uh, yeah, they'll take earthworms. They like yeah, in, any invertebrates. So earthworms, following the pl- uh, if they follow the plough, they'll often get earthworms. Or if the ground's damp, they'll be able to dig them up. Yeah. It seems like a it's, it's,
1: it's a, it sounds like rather a humble foodstuff for such a, a, a beautiful big noble bird, doesn't it?
3: <laughs> it really does, doesn't it? Yeah. In medieval times, they were seen to be as common as the carrion crow, and they were they would fulfil a similar role. So they would eat a lot of carrion, particularly in London, and they were seen as quite an urban bird, um, fulfilling quite a good role as scavenging, you know, dead animals, carcasses, rats, all sorts of things within London. Um, in fact, they were you know so popular at certain times that it was a capital offence to kill one.
1: Um, I, I wonder at what point then um, that. Uh, that switched from them being really valued and and mm. uh, to being persecuted and regarded as vermin. I, w- I wonder what, what the reason was for that switch of attitude.
3: Yes, I'm not entirely sure of the exact reason and when that happened. However, even during medieval times, I mean, there's, there's a couple of uh, references in Shakespeare uh, to red kites, one of which being fairly positive and about how they build their nests, but another sort of gave really negative connotations about scavenging. Um, so they were almost seen like a sort of cowardly bird. So I think it was in King Lear that they were talking, you know, there was a reference to someone being like a kite and cowardly. Um, so they had a negative connotation because they scavenged on the sc- street.
1: Perhaps Shakespeare was just following the um, popular opinion of the birds well, exactly. at the time. Yes, yes quite. Yeah. So, so um, Adam, do, to, to come sort of closer to home, what about red kites in Dorset? Do we have many breeding pairs?
3: We do, yes. Certainly in the last sort of 20, 10, 20 years, the, um, the population in Dorset has increased by quite a considerable amount. I don't know the exact number of breeding pairs within Dorset because it's one of those quite difficult things to estimate but they are regularly seen especially in the north of the county Um, and actually the Blackmoor Vale is a fantastic spot to see them because they love sort of mixed farmland woodlands they need old trees and things in order to produce uh, to make their nests and I know that when we at the Dorset Wildlife Trust are on some of our reserves such as Fontmel Down up near Shaftesbury almost guaranteed to see at least a pair often sort of four or five I mean it's yeah Do do they,
1: Adam? Do they need hilly country, the sort of country uh, where you know there are good updrafts uh, going up the hills, and they can they can take off from their tree? Uh,
3: Not not really. Actually, they're they're quite strong flies and they're very agile flies. So in this, the antique bird book that I had uh, or that I have, uh, they said they were sort of. Mountainous, they preferred mountainous regions, but the fact they're doing so well in lowland, it's more of a fact that there was a remnant population in mid Wales that was sort of just clinging on where there was less competition. But they like mixed farmland, grassland, woodlands. They, they do well on, um, in hilly areas, and they will take advantage of updrafts. So often they'll be... You, you can see them sort of stock still in the air with just their uh, really distinctive forked tail moving around just to, uh, to manoeuvre, and they can be beautiful and agile... However, they're not confined to that sort of area. As long as there's enough food and enough nesting areas, generally they're happy anywhere they can. Yeah.
1: But can. but it's not a, it's not going to be like the Middle Ages, and and we'll be about to see them in our towns any longer, is it?
3: No. Although actually, you, as you say that, um, there are quite there's a quite good population in quite a lot of urban areas because of supplemental feeding. I was reading something the other day about red kites in particularly Reading, uh, so near the Chilterns, where there was a you know, big population to start off with. They reckon about 300 kites a day come into the city to forage for food, because a lot of people will throw bits of chicken or bits of offcuts from meat into their garden, because red kites will swoop down and take food from their garden.
1: Well, well, that
3: would be quite right. something, wouldn't it? It, it would be. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm not sure about the the ethical uh, yeah, implications of sort of providing supplemental food, but. It yes, well, well, that's
1: incredible. a wee bit of a tricky Just one. Well, I think we'll leave that one alone, shall I think we, that's Adam? that's probably very sensible. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I did hear from a friend a couple of years mm-hmm. back a scare, some scaremongering stories from Oxford, um, yes. where, as you know, there are plenty of red kites, uh, that, accu- that these stories accuse them of doing the same thing as herring gulls, in other words, diving down and stealing food from people and scaring them. sounded to me like a bit of a fairy story, but is there
3: any truth in that? I think it's quite yeah it is quite exaggerated those sort of stories but you do get the odd one here and the odd story coming out here and there I think particularly in areas where going back to the supplemental feeding they've got more used to foraging in urban areas I mean I read a story the other day where someone apparently had a bit of sausage taken off a barbecue um, because their neighbour feeds the red kites and.
1: So they came but, down to the I
3: barbecue think. and nicked a hot sausage. Yeah. That can't yeah. have gone down very well,
1: no, you with either so, the actually. bird or the people. <laughs> no, quite. Yeah. yeah. Now, Adam, if we if we go across the channel and go south in France, mm-hmm. we'll see black kites as well as red kites. Did we ever have black kites in the UK?
3: There are the odd record here, here and there. I don't know if there, if we know we ever had black kites breeding.
1: Now, what about uh, persecution these days? Because the birds are legally protected, but uh, there are on some of the big shooting estates there are gamekeepers who poison them deliberately, don't they?
3: Yes, that is one of the main issues facing red kites at the moment. Is you know illegal poisoning. Uh, so because they're scavengers, obviously, even if the poison was left out, not necessarily intending it for red kites, uh, it could be for foxes or carrion crows. They they will often eat the poison bait and potentially, you know, get very sick or die from it. Another uh, issue that they face is uh, rodenticide poisoning. So often people will use hemorrhaging uh, chemicals which cause rats to hemorrhage. But because red kites are scavengers, they will feed on the dead rats and the things like warfarin and equivalent sort of chemicals will get into their system and cause real issues there as well.
1: But luckily, uh, such inc- incidences are fairly few and far between. Um, they are. They and in are the meantime, the, the, the birds continue to, the population continues to increase, and they continue to give us the pleasure of seeing them sawing gracefully overhead.
3: Oh, absolutely. And they are beautiful, beautiful birds. They are really, really stunning. The sort of russet red with the white and gray head and just such agile flyers. They are, yeah, one of my favourites, I have to say. real treat to see them
1: adam wilcott of the dorset wildlife trust
0: politics does every town need a town centre despite changes in retail habits town centres continue to play an essential role argues mp simon hoare many years ago i attended a lecture given at the royal town planning institute while it was not a sell-out affair i doubt attendance at such an event is on anyone's bucket list the topic was an interesting one does every town need a town centre It was not a rhetorical question, and the lecturer felt that the question was answerable in the negative. He felt that internet shopping, coupled with increased access to personal modes of transport, meant that retail and local services could be focused on one or two towns with quite a large geographical area. I did not and do not agree. Every town is different. It has evolved over varying time spans and for various reasons. Notwithstanding this, the needs of a town's inhabitants appear to be pretty universal. We need somewhere to meet and hold community events. We need food, so food retail is important. A pub or two and a few eateries provide space for socialising and entertainment. We need to be groomed and occasionally pampered. A post office or bank provides essential financial and other services. It's true that our retail habits have changed with the advent of the internet, Supermarket home delivery means that increasingly the big shop is undertaken online. The internet also plays an increasingly important role for banking, TV license renewals, etc., as it will increasingly do so for health too. So, our town centres are necessarily evolving to meet the needs of today. Doubtless, some current commercial properties will be converted, possibly reconverted, to residential use. This is to be welcomed providing, as it does, sustainable living space and a sense of community and activity in the centres long after the shops have shut. Trying to win the pricing competition is an uphill struggle for small local independent traders, and it's not one they should embark on. Instead, a resolute focus on product knowledge, local supply chain, short food miles, and a personal level of service makes the local shopper feel valued and the experience a pleasant one. Some current commercial units are likely to be converted to provide entertainment, leisure, or, to use the real estate phrase, dwell time, facilities. Our town councils have an important role to play too, ensuring the streets are clean, planters attractive, and that there's the odd bench here and there to attract people to their area. We are blessed in North Dorset. The principal towns of Blandford Forum, Sturminster newton Shaftesbury, Gillingham, and Verwood all have unique character and charm. They also have standout town councils and councillors who play a key role. The restrictions of Covid lockdowns, they seem a lifetime ago don't they, forced people to use their towns and they liked what they saw and found. As more people work from home, the opportunity to shop locally and on one's doorstep presents itself, thereby maintaining footfall and supporting local business. We all have a role to play Central Government needs to provide flexibility within the planning rules and continued support for business rates. Dorset Council needs to be fleet of foot on planning and harnessing the energies of local entrepreneurs, benefactors and others to deliver sustainable change, ensuring the longevity of our centres. But above all, if we are to answer the question my lecturer posed in the affirmative, we need to use them or lose them.
1: Time for change, time for the grown-ups, says Mike Chapman of the North Dorset Lib Dems. In Ukraine, the people are fighting for their nation, for a future free from the disgusting influence of the criminal clique in Moscow. Thank you, Ukrainians, for showing us that democracy is worth fighting for. Dorset is doing its bit in support. More than 400 Ukrainian families have joined our West Country ranks and are starting to make their own contribution. Meanwhile, we had a great Lib Dem outcome in the Summerton and Froome by-election. What pleased me the most was the evident faith put in the strength and capability of our local candidate, Sarah Dyke. She is a genuine local of our land and our rural ethos and will make a difference up in the smoke. More power to her elbow, I say. I spent the day telling outside a couple of polling stations, much of the time alongside my Conservative equivalent, It wasn't long into the morning before we all knew what was happening, just from the various comments of people en passant. My oppo wasn't surprised or downcast. There was, however, a fatalism about the situation and a wish that the last 18 months in the Tory party hadn't happened. Our discussions range from illegal migration, France's fault, to climate change, China's fault. These may be the popular sentiments, but, of course, They lay the blame on the effect, not the cause. The real causes lie in complex geopolitics and in the West's combination of consumerism and post-industrial mindset. It is sad to hear of the likely rolling back of what Johnson labelled green crap as a result of the Uxbridge and South Reislip by-election. It is typical of our short-termist, Keep power-at-any-cost politics that the knee-jerk reaction from the governing party is to appeal to the pound in your pocket today and stick it to the next generation. Tory to a T. Time to move on from government for the populists, by the populists, egged on by the populist press, onto something a bit more serious. So, first up, how about proportional representation as a means to get the whole country engaged in the process of government? Today's winner-takes-all system results in the disengagement of about two-thirds of the population, because they're being governed by people they did not vote for. What about the virtues of strong government? I hear you cry. What virtues? The stonking majority of 2019 has created a monster, now controlled by its right wing. No wonder it just goes round in circles. Next stop for us is Mid-Bedfordshire, home to the dreadful Dorries, a powerful minister under Johnson, and once with the future of the BBC in her gift. More than time for change, it is time for the grown-ups. Time for Sarah Dyke and her like.
0: There's a dead cat and it smells of carbon, says Pat Osborne of the North Dorset Labour Party. The Rishi Sunak helicoptering in to announce a carbon capture project hypocrisy is a fine dead cat of a story. Cynically positioned alongside news of his first family holiday abroad in four years, it's clear that many ordinary holidaymakers in the same position will feel some sympathy for him, but it's pure distraction. The real story is Sunak's decision to grant 100 new North Sea oil and gas licences, demonstrating an ongoing investment by the government in irreversible damage to the planet. Firstly, 80% of North Sea oil is exported. If we needed more, there's clearly enough existing supply. Simply redirect it to the domestic market. And as for the gas, this was not, as advertised, a move that will ease household energy bills. Before the war in Ukraine, Russia provided just 4% of the UK's gas. Most of it comes from Norway. Prices rose due to the war in Ukraine because they are set by global traders. Will more gas from the North Sea mean cheaper domestic fuel bills? Unlikely. Rishi Sunak can't force the licensees, many backed by multinational companies, to sell it at a discounted price in the UK. They trade at the international prices. In the face of this tidal wave of environmental vandalism, the announcement of the new carbon capture project in St Fergus, Aberdeenshire, is like offering an egg cup to bail out an already sinking ship. In the same week that the Met Office announced that last year's 40 degree plus UK heatwave will be considered on the cool side within a few decades, and the UN declared July 2023 to be the hottest month in human history, the Tories are clearly not taking climate change seriously enough. In light of this decision, and the others like it, the UK's net zero by 2050 target seems increasingly unachievable. Meanwhile, the recently reinforced commitment to ban sales of new petrol and diesel cars by 2030 seems more and more likely to buckle under pressure from the loony libertarian wing of the Tory party that's really running the show. Sunak's commitment to meet our net-zero target in a pragmatic and proportionate way, but without unnecessarily adding costs and burdens to families, is also a nonsense. Even his own party chairman has admitted that his current policy will not take a penny off household bills, and neither will a continued commitment to oil and gas do anything to mitigate our reliance on fossil fuel oligarchs and dictators who do not share our democratic values. The good, the bad
1: and the downright ugly, says Ken Huggins of the North Dorset Green Party. The Uxbridge by-election had it all. It was good for the Conservatives, winning narrowly by focusing on the Labour Mayor of London's plans to penalise the 10% of most polluting cars by charging them to drive in the area. It was bad for Labour, of course, and it was downright ugly for anyone wanting common sense to dominate in our battle to stop climate change. Both parties have started rowing back on their already inadequate plans to tackle global warming, as if net zero would just be nice to have, instead of an absolute necessity. Where was the grown-up conversation, for example, about the economic benefits of a fair transition to a cleaner world, or the costly, massive damage to lives and health from fossil fuel-driven air pollution? Aside from clean air, there are two other absolutely essential requirements for survival. Clean water and healthy food. At the moment, we're doing our damnness to deprive ourselves of those too. Water has hit the headlines recently, with decades of failed privatisation having seen waterway sewage pollution increase. Water companies have been loaded with billions of pounds of debt, while billions of pounds have been paid out in dividends to shareholders, most of them based overseas. As for food, we urgently need to reform what we eat, how it's produced and where it's grown. Targeted support for farmers is key. More than a quarter of all the food we grow is never eaten. That's 13 million tonnes wasted. Industrialised farming is a major cause of damage to our soils and the pollution of our waterways with pesticides, fertilisers and so on. Agriculture uses 71% of land in England, with 85% of that used for feeding and rearing livestock. Growing plants for human consumption generates around 12 times more calories per hectare than using the land for meat production. We presently import 46% of the fresh vegetables we eat and 84% of the fruit. Poor diet causes diabetes, cardiac disease and other obesity-related conditions. It is blighting the lives of millions, predominantly our poorer citizens, and is costing the NHS billions. Unsustainable. The government knows all this, but isn't taking the action needed. Time for change. In episode 3 of July's BV podcast, we heard from Bournemouth University archaeologist Paul Cheatham about the Winterbourne Kingston Iron Age dig, nicknamed Duropolis. Paul is co-director of the dig. A host of interesting artefacts and bones, including human skeletons, have been unearthed over the years from the dig. It's a site that's worked in the summer months, and members of the public are invited to take part. Last time, Paul ended by saying that it was clear that the focus of these Iron Age farmers, the Durotrigans, was their animals. Now he tells us how they're trying to interpret the significance of the animal bones they've been unearthing in what are called the banjo enclosures at the site.
4: In previous years, we've dug a, a one a lot, the, the second of these banjo enclosures. Two together have never been excavated before, so that's the first. But the, the other one, by the entrance, we found, I think, 17 horse skulls by the gateway. And those horse skulls, the teeth had fallen out, the jaws were missing. It was clear that they were they were displaying the 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 horse skulls in some way at the entrance. It was clearly their status symbol. What people find surprising in in in, in the Iron Age in Dorset, there are no bows and arrows whatsoever.
1: No bows and arrows. None at all.
4: No no no, signs of of uh, no. no
1: aggressive. Warfare nope, no
4: no no they the, the 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 weapon of the common man was the sling uh, um, there are no bows and arrows, and there's no evidence of them hunting at all. We get the odd wild animal it's very rare on the site um, and they didn't eat any fish uh, or seafood in any way, so they were very much farmers and it seemed to be all their status and wealth was was within their animals. And this is why we think that they make so much effort when they're filling in these pits to place the animals that they presumably venerate or they need uh, within the deposits. Um, And they will often combine different uh, animals together. We often find horse skulls with cow jaws and the other way uh, around. And they've put, you know, they've actually constructed, reconstructed bits of animals and put them in the. The pits um, as an offering. So one year we had a we f- we found a horse, quite small, um, we're Iron Age horses, more like ponies, in one of the pits. But it it's, it had been decapitated, so they'd obviously taken the head, probably to display. But um, in in place of the head, they put a cow skull.
1: I, I did uh, um I, I did read that there there was a suggestion that that sort of assembly of mixed animal species parts w- was was uh, hinted at a Celtic belief in animal monsters? Is there any
4: truth in that suggestion well they I, I, they look like monsters to us, but to them I think you know they they, they I, I talk about a language of deposition. They knew what they were doing when they were putting these animal remains in in the pits as as offerings but the thing about it is that, really, we don't understand this language. So, again, just at the end of the dig, Amanda, the the, the lady I was talking about, who had brought her uh, children, were, were helping her. Um, right at the bottom of her pit, when she exposed the, the, the animal remains, they placed very carefully in the middle of the pit a horse skull, upside down. They often do that. They put, like to put them upside down, teeth showing. Uh, but then around it, there were piles of animal bones collected, I think there were about eight piles of um, it would have been, where they just collected up from the site, just a a bit of pig, a bit of horse, a bit of this, and they clearly put a sort of ring of little piles of bone. There, There was clear intention there, but what they were trying to communicate Presumably, with the gods or with their ancestors, we we we, we are trying to decipher, but it See, is very difficult. You,
1: you've got uh, you've got a bit of a Rosetta Stone here, then, haven't you? Uh, yeah. you're, you're not trying to decipher, uh, decipher any written language, but but uh, physical symbols yeah.
4: yes and and as i say this idea that they they would um combine animals as i said they're monstrous to us but they probably saw it as some sort of fusion of um, who knows of the strengths of the different animals together or something like that you know so so yes i mean for instance we've had some very a few odd things that have been regarded as monstrous for, for instance we found a sheep which had a uh, a cow's skull placed up against its rear end, um, uh, and it ju- so it looked very weird when we excavated it—a sort of sheep with a, a cow's head. But um, you know, I—I—I I, I th- I mean, it, it's the fact that they also buried humans within the settlement. Um, often, they would bury small children, um, neonates or uh, perinates, so, uh, children that presumably died in childbirth or just after. They would bury them very locally to where they were living. And that continued in, even to in the Roman period. Children who died um, young would often be buried under the floors of the houses. Again, we think this is a bit odd, but clearly you can see it as sort of um, uh, odd. But you can also see it as possibly that they wanted to keep their dead child close to them. You know, uh, it's there. There may there may be more of a um, you know an emotional connection and, that we're, and... we're not seeing.
1: And who knows? Paul they may also have had a belief that the child's spirit remained close to the body.
4: Exactly. Exactly. So, so you know, these these we're trying to understand these behaviors. The thing about the Iron Age as well is that they, for the for most periods of the of the Iron Age, um, we can't find any human remains. We don't know what they did with the bodies. There were clearly large families up there. Um, the, the, the 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 downland up there was probably more occupied than it is today um, in terms of population density Um, but we don't find um, many um, human remains they didn't have formal cemeteries which is a bit of a strange thing Um, But,
1: but you have found you have unearthed human skeletons haven't you
4: well only a very tiny number Um, in for the main part of the Iron Age. So up until just before the Romans came about 50 BC when there is a change in behavior before that literally there are no bodies there are no cemeteries we don't know what they did with most of the people we find odd burials in the pits which seem to be possibly um, uh, for some reason they've decided that this person will go in a pit Um, we've had two that do appear to be sacrifices or um, executions but the rest of them are absolutely fine but we've only had about 10 and that's over a period of you know f- uh, 500 years there's I clearly got to be a lot more people um, I wonder in,
1: if perhaps they took them down to the coast and exactly floated them out
4: to sea well we, we so
1: there we, was we, no pollution of their precious land
4: well of course you get bog bodies in the Iron Age where their bodies are placed in watery disposed of in watery places often with ritual associated with it so the fact that they don't eat fish or um uh, uh, or seafood may mean that they are disposing of the bodies within rivers or at sea there's also if if you're familiar with the sort of battersea shield and other iron-aids objects that have been pulled out of the thames that they were putting offerings of, of quite expensive objects in rivers that may have gone in with, with, with human remains. But unfortunately within that environment, they don't survive, but we, they certainly weren't cremating them. We, we would find the um, fragments of burnt bone. They're not exposing them uh, because again, we tend to find odd elements of human remains about, and we don't. So we, we, we as I say, we, we've, we've got about 10 burials from this early Iron Age period that have gone in pits. So they're very special. Um, and we are having them fully analysed to look at where their origins come from and their DNA. But later in later in the Iron Age, just before about 50 BC, they suddenly changed their um, belief system completely. And, we're not, and that's this is an exciting thing we're trying to sort out. And they suddenly decided, no, we're going to bury our dead. What we're going to do is we're not going to put them in pits. We're going to dig individual graves, a fresh hole. We're going to put the, the burial in. We're going to put it um, in a particular way. They're always going to be on their side, um, and next to them, uh, we're going to give them a pot with presumably some um, uh, sustenance for the afterlife. Or if we don't give them a pot full of um, some, some sort of uh, food stuff, we'll give them a side of meat. And if you're a female, you'll get a side of lamb. And if you're a male, you'd normally get a side of pig. And uh, and we'll put you in a shroud and uh, we often find the pins that held the shroud together and uh, you've probably laid in state for a few days because these um, bodies are tightly bundled up in a way that suggests that they, 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 there must have been a certain amount of decomposition before they went in the ground. Um, and we'll put them in little cemeteries and, and the cemeteries, what we'll do with the cemeteries, we'll go to an old monument that's out of use, that's probably been out of use for 200 years and we'll place your bodies there presumably with sort of with the ancestors Um, and and that was what was going on when the romans uh, turned up so we've had we've now got three of these late roman cemeteries and and again we've been able to take uh, dna and get radiocarbon dates and we're getting a, a wonderful picture of how the society worked at that period and we're currently writing the paper for that so that will be coming out soon but it's all sort of under wraps at the moment <laughs> oh, it's
1: all, all very all very exciting for you Paul um finally you you mentioned to me just the other day that you'd made uh, just lo- well just last week
4: made a rather exciting
1: discovery well, would you tell me about
4: that one i 'm not sure what, what, what do, do you remember what it was i make some, there's so many exciting discoveries I no you you just mentioned you'd made a really really uh, well i really... think I, th- I i think i think that, yeah that, that the the thing that we found was this um as i say was this uh, pit with the skull and the piles of bones because as i say a lot of a lot of the time you will find a skull and a jaw and something like that, and you think well yeah was this intentionally put there you could argue it was it wasn't you know um, but um as i say this 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 deposit with the with the skull upside down in the middle and the little piles of bones is probably the clearest evidence of intentionality you know there's clearly some sort of ceremony clearly a ceremony going on where they're collecting up the bones and placing them in these, um, uh, in this way, right at the bottom of the pit, and then they're filling it in. And, and as I say, you, you couldn't, there's no way that you could argue that there was not intentionality there. This is not some accidental act. This is very clear um, insight into, hopefully, um, uh, uh, give us ideas of what they were thinking about, the, how their, their cosmology, how they related to the world and the universe, um, to the heavens and the earth and uh, as I say the more of these pits we've dug now we're getting so much information about the way these deposits are put together we may be able to get some some ideas we'll never know the past has gone it's a distant place that's getting farther away every year um, uh, and the evidence is getting less to to an extent but it does give us the, you know, this is the wonderful thing about archaeology. We we get this, there, there, there are no absolute truths in the past. We just have evidence. That, uh, so we get, we get scientific evidence, but then you have to interpret it with a, a sprinkle of imagination and creativity to bring it back to life again. And I think that's the uh, wonderful thing about archaeology and, and working on the sites that we are working on.
1: But gradually, of course, the more that you unearth here, the more that you can try and and draw aside the veil that hides this 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 past of over two thousand two thousand years ago
4: Yes, yes, hopefully, yeah, um, it, particularly with the modern techniques, um, as i say the, from the geophysics that I used to, to allow us to very carefully target excavation in the past, it was very haphazard. Um, sites would just you know come across accidentally or within development. We're uh, on this hillside. We're able to make sure we target everywhere, and that's meant that we do have this set of um, of human remains going from the Bronze Age through to the late Roman period. So we can answer, We can start to address questions. You know, are these all the same people? Or are there waves of invasion, so in inverted commas, incomes coming in? How does the society work? You know, who's the head of the household? How do, you know, is it the men or the women that are moving about? You know, how do the families work? Can we trust the commentary of people like Caesar about the, the how the INA society worked? Because we can actually test that out now. And often, as I say, the, the reality is a lot more interesting than probably the simplistic ideas that were have been um, offered in the past. Reality is often more interesting than anybody can make up, <laughs> as, as, uh, as is often the case. Paul
1: Cheatham, co-director of the Winterbourne Kingston Duropolis Iron Age Dig, and we may be hearing from him again later this year with some very interesting news about their finds.
0: Well, that's it for part one of the August BV Magazine podcast. Join us for episode two in about two weeks' time. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. And until next time, goodbye from me, Jenny Devitt.